Today I'll be reading for you and preaching for you out of Nehemiah chapter 4, the first six verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we will build the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your provocation to us to submit and to listen to only to your truth. We pray now that even as we look at this narrative of the interactions with your people and the lies of those against them, that you would help us to understand that you have always been victorious. And you, had dom- you have dominated over the lies of your enemies and adversaries. But help us, Father, to know how to apply this to our own lives today. For we are those who are surrounded by lies, who are surrounded by deceptions and falsehood all over the place. And namely, even in our own hearts. Help us to hear your truth and respond in faithfulness. According to Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Usually in an installation service, we have a charge to whichever officer has been installed. And in this case, it's a charge not only for Richard, who is now an elder in this congregation, but it's a charge for us all. But it really much, it does very much highlight the specific call for an elder because an elder is called to be focused and dwelling on being a man of word and prayer. Not that any of you do not have that particular calling yourself, but that his is an elevated as a leader in the endeavoring of word and prayer. He is to be specifically, his office is 
specifically focused on that. So much that when we see the institution of the diaconate is that that is showing the contrast that the elders said that we have to be able to be even more focused on word and prayer, that we need assistance in helping out with serving those in the congregation. And so the office of deacon came into play. That is how important it is that elders and leaders and officers with this particular calling to be about the word and prayer. And here we see in this narrative that very focus to be holding on tightly to a faithful listening and dwelling in the word of God and to be responding to those promises and that proclamation with intense prayer, with intense hope and expectation of God to fulfill his very word. This is an interesting passage. It's a, it's a hard one to observe. Whenever you see anyone mocking another person, it's a very uncomfortable situation. We, none of us like that. That is one of the worst places to be is in the middle of a verbal fight. It's almost more enjoyable to watch physical fights than it is to watch verbal fights. Uh, we typically like to watch maybe a boxing match. Well, maybe it's not so much like this today. I know that for me, uh, I enjoy when I watch a boxing match that it's more enjoyable if there is this mutual respect of each other. That it, you see these two people truly getting to the sport in the discipline of boxing and that all the trash is not there. Nowadays, I guess that's a part of the entertainment that there's a lot of trash talk going into it. And, you know, and it's Maybe sometimes it's a little fun, it's a little entertaining, but we know that that can really unravel very quickly. Here we see that when Sanballat heard about the work that Nehemiah was leading the Jews to do, that he jeered at them. This English word jeered has this um, close connotation to sneering. It's, the word even sounds like something that's not very pleasant, that he jeered at them. The Hebrew word that, for, that is here in the actual original writings is not too far either. It's log. He logged at them. Um, that, so it even has a sound that's not as pleasant to the ears as well. Now, now maybe that word in other Hebrew uh, or that sound in other Hebrew words is a pleasant thing. But it, it, just in my study, I'm like, yeah, that kind of sounds too. That he logged. Logged is L-A-A-G in, a, in the English sounding of it. You could pretty much translate that to nana nana boo boo. <laughs> uh, like a, almost like a preschool kind of approach to mocking. In fact, if you think about nana nana boo boo, if you know that whole <laughs> particular little, I actually did a little small, very brief time of studying about nana nana boo boo. It's, I'm better than you. Nana, nana, boo, boo. It's this, it's this competition. And then kind of like jeering at them, you need to go to your nana, your, your mama, because you have a boo, boo. You know, it's, that's the kind of thing that we learn very early on. It's instilled in the heart of us that we have because of our sinful hearts. It eventually comes out with our tongues. But here we see, and this is a blessing for us to actually observe this, even though it may be a little uncomfortable, that in this particular passage, it's very neatly organized to see the components 
of what it is like to receive unfaithful mockery. And I say unfaithful mockery because the Bible is also very full of times of telling us that God is going to mock his enemies. And so we know that there can be faithful mocking, but it seems to be left to the most part for our Heavenly Father to do. So today I want to talk about three things that we can learn from this passage, and hopefully we can do it in a timely manner so we can get on to other business that's going on this day. But three particular things I want to highlight is, one, the nature of the provocation that we have here from Symbolics and Tobiah and from really the adversaries and the enemies of God that we are familiar with as well. Satan is alive and well today, and the father of lies is alive and well today, and so lies are still very prevalent, and will be until the final day when Jesus returns. And so we need to look here at those particular natures of what negative and mocking provocation is like so that we can also become accustomed to that and, and to distinguish that when we hear it ourselves in our own day. Secondly, I want us to be focused on the nature of the promises of God. Now here we don't have a proclamation of a specific promise, but there is definitely, it is implicit in when we consider the context of going into this particular narrative, we know that the promises of God are there. And we know that Nehemiah's response in prayer is built upon those promises. So I want us to be reminded of the context of the nature of the promises that are provoking the prayer that Nehemiah prays. And then I want us to look at just simply the nature of the prayer. That is Nehemiah praying there. It's interesting that there's not a very much of a transition. I was reading this passage to my family this morning, and I added in there that it says, and Nehemiah prayed. And then Sophia says, oh, it's interesting that Nehemiah made that comment. I said, no, he actually didn't. It just immediately goes into Nehemiah's prayer. And so to help my kids to understand that there had been a change in who was speaking, I said that, but it's that quickly attached to the jeering. And maybe our prayers too need to be as quickly attached, that there's not a moment in between that as soon as we begin to hear the lies and the jeering of the enemies and adversary of God, we are very quick to go to our Lord. So the nature of the provocation, the nature of the promise, in the nature of the prayer. Now, in a sense, chapter three is almost an interruption of what we all, of the very jeering that had already begun with Sanballat and Tobiah. If we quickly flip back to Nehemiah chapter two in verse 19, it says, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant of Geshem, the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us And said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied, who's Nehemiah, says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So this is getting back to the narrative at hand. We had that moment, what seemed to be just a bunch of data of who was building where in the wall. And I hope that I was able to lay out last week that that was a very encouraging 
uh, bulk of data there that it was actually painting this picture of the unity of God's people working together and creating this wall around Jerusalem and that there were different components of that wall that needed to be reshored up and rebuilt for the defenses and the preparation and the vulnerabilities, but all centered at the Sheep Gate, very centered in the Messiah and centered in their hope in Jesus Christ. And I hope that I was able to also paint for you that this is an image and a shadow of not only Christ to come, but also the body of Christ, which is this church. And so as we had this very encouraging and victorious preface to the story, knowing that there is victory, not only that they were able to accomplish the building of the wall, but that ultimately the true temple has been built and has been established and is now growing and being continually built in the church. We go back to the, the dirty work at hand. And really we see here that the biggest challenge is the lies and the jeering. It is the adversaries that we have, that we have to face when we are doing the work of God. Let us break it down just a little bit. Let's look at the nature of the words of this particular adversary in Sanballat as he is asking these questions, mockingly asking these questions. The first thing he asks, he says, what are the feeble Jews doing? Now, one of the things that are in the nature of any kind of adversarial work is going to be, they're going to hone in on weakness. That's a very common thing, just like nana nana boo boo. You're hurt, you're weak, you're going to have to go to some other part of something that's going to be stronger. It is going to be mocking in weakness. And we know that from the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah begins with crying out to the Lord, acknowledging the weakness of God's people, acknowledging the sins of him and his fathers and asking repentance and forgiveness from the Lord. So Nehemiah is one and also the Jews in this particular posture is acknowledging that weakness and often because we are acknowledging and aware of the weaknesses in our life, that is a place where Satan wants to attack, the adversary wants to attack. So usually when we hear the lies of our adversary, they will highlight our feebleness and our weakness. Secondly, he says, will they restore for themselves? Now we know from the promises of God that there is the promise of restoration. And in that moment, and you have to know, we're kind of, Rewinding back, we know that it, there's a victorious end here, not only in for that particular time in Jerusalem, but for the heavenly Jerusalem. We know the ending of the story is going to be victorious, but in that particular moment, they're looking at piles of rubble. Now, if you have ever dealt with working in construction, I know some of you helped with this particular church building. I know with Dave and Maharus and I, when we were... <laughs> Right here where you all were sitting, and it, this is probably the strongest part of the building now, so you don't have to be afraid. It was really scary. When we came in here after it was given to us, the floor bowed like that. <laughs> and that's probably an accurate description of the radius <laughs> of the bow. And then when we looked down under there, Dave went under there, and, 
and Brian Douts went under there and took some pictures. It looked like barnacles and like there was a whole ecosystem <laughs> growing on the joists where there was so much moisture and rot occurring there. And I have to admit that when Dave and Maharus and I were looking at this building, we're thinking, is it even going to be worthwhile to even try to restore this thing? Maybe if it caught on fire, it would be more worthwhile to us <laughs> if it just stayed down. And that is the way often when we are looking at our endeavors and the restoration work of our own sanctification and in our own endeavors in our family and in our endeavors with the church and our endeavors as a nation, we look at where we are currently, even though we have the promises that are from Jesus Christ of his victory in us, in our seasons of where we are now, we look and we go, it's nothing but a pile of rubble and rot. Nothing here to work with. How can it be restored? How can this be brought back to a place of usefulness and fruitfulness? It might as well just be thrown in the trash, right? And as we're at this lowly point, we hear this other question coming from Sanballat. You know, Sanballat's even kind of a rough name to hear. Like, he just sounds like he's not a very great guy to work with. But he says, will there be sacrifice? Now, maybe in our own honesty, we may realize, yeah, we are worthless sinners. We are broken down. Our efforts are useless in of themselves. But here he hits really to the heart. He says, will they be sacrificed? Will they even be able to do the work that they're intending to do, which is ultimately trusting in the Lord's mercy? Will they be able to worship this God according to what he has called to point to and to hope in a sacrifice for their ruin and their destruction? He begins to mock their, even their spiritual salvation. He's not just mocking the physical work and the physical rubble, but he's equating that to them as a people before God. And he says, will they even be able to sacrifice? They're so hopeless, they can't even rely on God enough. That is the hopelessness of all hopelessness. <laughs> to not be able to have the ability to hold on to God. That is often where we are at. We have Satan coming to you and our adversary will come and not only highlight our weakness, but not only highlight our inability to be restored, but to say, you know what? You're not even saved. You can't even, you can't even acknowledge that you are trusting in Jesus. You are so bad that it's impossible for you to even be one who could hold on to the sacrifice of your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Again, this is not very pleasant because I'm sure that all of us, I know I have, heard these kind of lies in my own head. But it's important for us to acknowledge and to recognize the nature of the words of our adversary because God here is showing us these painful words because he wants us to be encouraged that they're nothing but lies. Will they finish up in a day? Like, okay. Yeah, maybe you can hold on to your salvation. Maybe 
There could be some work of restoration, but man, you're so far away from any kind of any kind of completion. You don't even there's not enough time in eternity for you to get finished. You won't finish your work. You'll fail. You'll have to quit. You'll probably give up later on. You might be trusting in the Lord now. You might actually see some growth in the... You'll probably fall again. You've done it before. In fact, if you look at your particular record, your record will show you will always fall down. You always fail. You always are unable to complete the work that has been started in you. Will you finish up? And then lastly, he comes back he says, will they revive these stones? Come here, look at this, people. Look at these stones. Look at this rubbish. Another one of those pleasant words to listen to. Rubbish. This trash. This waste. It's so much waste. It's, already, it's, it's not just waste. It's burned waste. You know, waste may be extra useful, but when it's all burned up, it's nothing. It has no usefulness. This is what you have. Your stones are nothing but rubbish and burn. There's nothing but hopelessness here. Are you familiar with this nature of the adversary? The kind of lies? Can you see how there have been seasons in history and also in your own personal life? This is just the way that Satan has done things for the whole existence of this earth and mankind. And then we have Tobiah. Every commentary that I mention says that he's definitely a subordinate to Sambal. He's, he's, he seems smaller. He's, he's like this, he's, if you're familiar with Star Wars, he's like Silicious Crumb. You have Jabba the Hutt saying whatever blubber he's saying. And then you have <laughs> salicious crumb over here on the side. This salicious meaning inappropriate, crude and lewd crumb of a person saying, you know what they're building? What they're building, if a fox goes up on it, it'll break down their stone wall. Again, you got to remember there's an audience here of the brothers, which are the associates of Sambalat and even the whole army of Samaria and they're all just mocking. It's an audience. This is meant to be done to show this assembly of people of mockery against God's people. We see that this is, has already been done as the beginning of the temple was already being built, if you flip back even further in Ezra, you'll see that this was the same nature when the Jews came and began the work of the restoration of the temple. If you flip back to Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you. We will worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshurhandan, the king of Assyria, who had brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers and the houses of Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in the building of the house of our God, but we 
alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as the king of Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people, the adversaries of the land, discouraged the people and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. It always starts with words, right? It's always where it goes. There's just something in the nature. It's, it's the very first fight that was ever picked was Satan using words. It always starts there. You don't just, you know, typically, unless there's already some kind of context or preface, you don't just normally have people just walking down the street and all of a sudden they just start punching at each other, right? There's always the fight with words. And that's, again, that's usually the hardest part. And it's usually your last resort is that you have to start swinging. You have to use some kind of physical connection to the words that are being said. It is amazing that it is a sport in of itself. There's even TV shows now where you can see what kind of insults. You know, it, it's, there's, there's even competition on who, who can make the worst insult to the other person. And you win points for that based upon the cheers and what people think in the audience. This is the first place of fighting. It is the first place that Satan went to because it's the first target of attack because we know in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The attack's always going to be ultimately on the Word, on Jesus that's going to be the nature of what is going on here. We might look at this particular narrative at Ezra and say, well, they just wanted to come and worship, and why were they so mean in return? Well, we know in the very beginning of that chapter, it says, now the adversaries of Judah, so it gives us a hint that these were not people who had their hearts in the right places. You could pretty much see this also in the New Testament with Herod. When Herod said to the wise men, hey, tell me where Jesus is going to be. I want to go and worship him. And we all know that he wanted to kill him. That was, I guess, maybe he equated those two things together. <laughs> Here we know that these particular adversaries of God had no intentions. And thankfully, we know that the leaders here saw that and said, you're not a part of the same work that we're doing here. And it makes reference there in Ezra. We see that there's this promise being given and they see that this promise is already enacted because they have Cyrus. King Cyrus is the one who has proclaimed this work to be done. And that proclamation of this work being done is a fulfillment of the prophecies of God's word. And so we need to always go back. Our first place should be when we are hearing the adversary give us those lies and the jeering and the sneering and the salacious comments about what God is doing, we have to go back to the promises. So it's important for us to understand the nature of the promise because this is the victorious provocation of why this work is being done. See, both Ezra and Nehemiah we're resting in the word of God and his prophecy from Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 44, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So God's people at the time of hearing the adversaries that were in the land had to go back and remember that. And they were seeing it being done. They were seeing the fruits of God's work being done with Cyrus making this proclamation. And they had to keep remembering that God is going to frustrate the signs of the liars. But he is going to confirm his word. And he will raise up the ruins. He will build. He will create the foundation for his temple and for his kingdom. That had to be deep in their hearts to be able to continue to press them on. They knew that they could not rely on the equality of the, of the materials, the building materials. I mean, it's, it's so hard to be able to try to construct things out of bad materials. You know, if you go and buy crooked two by fours or, or rotted wood, it, you'd be like, I can't even do this. They saw the, the ruins before them. They saw the rubble, but they had to go back and say, God is going to work with ruins. He says he's going to raise up ruins. He's going to restore the things that are rot. And he promises that he will rebuild. That's the nature of God's promises. That's the nature of the promises that we must hold on to in the very midst of seeing nothing before us other than ruin and other than destruction. And then that lack of gap, and that lack of commentary between Tobiah's sneering comments and the prayer of Nehemiah that needs to be the same distance of time that we have in reaction, that we quickly turn to the Lord. You notice what's not inside of that small gap? He doesn't even respond to Tobiah. He's not speaking to Tobiah or Sanballat. He hears the jeers. He hears the laughing. He hears the mocking. And he immediately goes to the Lord. Now, in the Proverbs, we know that there are times to answer a fool according to a fool. But, you know, typically it seems like most of the time we should not answer a fool according to the fool. I would say that that would probably outnumber the times. Because we also know that we should be slow to speak, slow to anger. This doesn't say be quick on your feet and be able to do a drop mic situation as quickly as you can. No, it doesn't. 
give us that. There's not really much indication there. It says be ready to give a defense. But because we are also sinners dealing with other sinners, we know that being slow to speak and not answering a fool according to the fool is the best way to keep us most of the time from not being the fool ourselves. That is the general nature of the Proverbs and of wisdom and the fear of the Lord. The nature of our prayer needs to be that it needs to be in line with the word of God. Something that we see here that's an echo with Ezra and with Nehemiah is that because they were thinking about the promises of God and they were recognizing the nature of the adversary's lies and provocation, they were understanding that this was not consistent with the promises of God. And so the nature of their prayer, their, their only response that they have is to say, you're not of this work. You're not, I can hear you loud and clear. You are not a part of this work that God is doing. And that may seem harsh, but we have to understand that it's built upon an understanding of what God has promised. And we see this in Matthew with, John the Baptist, when it says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, it says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, and he saw these guys coming and he knew what were on their lips and what were on their minds and in their hearts, he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He sees these men coming and he's like, we're only here for those who are repenting. This is only for sick people. <laughs> this is only for dirty people. This is for only for people who are coming based upon the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man and trying to find a, a, a way to see how that's going to work out. You're coming here as those who are clean. And then it says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. They were, he was hearing the nature of the provocation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was listening to the prophecies and the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God. And his response was based upon that. We see Jesus doing the same thing in John chapter 8. He says to the same group of people, If God were your father, you would have loved me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you why do you not believe? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are of, not of God. You are not of this work. You are of the work 
of the father of lies. Now, this can be challenging for us because just as we read in our repentance, our confession of sin and our assurance is that Jesus came and yet while we were sinners, he died for us. This puts us in kind of what seems to be an odd paradox because we see that there's some boldness here. We see that in Nehemiah's prayer and response is that he actually prays a imprecatory prayer against Sanballat and Tobiah. He says, turn their taunts back on their heads. And he even says, don't let their sins be covered up. Now, there's a couple of ways to read that. We can say, you know, don't let them be hidden. Let them be right out in the open. Now, when we're hearing it, I think it's not too far-fetched for us to say what we kind of think of. Like, he's almost saying that, he, that their sins can't be covered up maybe by the blood of Jesus, right? That seems awfully bold. He's basically saying, let them be damned. Now, some of you may feel like praying prayers like that, but we have this challenge because we're challenged by the thing that we have from Jesus. It says in Matthew 5, you have heard that it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here we are being commanded by our king and savior that we are to love our enemies and to pray for them. And I don't think he is telling us in that particular context, love your enemies and pray that they'll never be saved. (laughs) But we also know that Jesus quoted from the Psalms more than any other place in the old testament and we know in psalm 79 it says let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power preserve those doomed to die return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors that taunts with which they have taunted you O lord but we your people the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation we will recount your praises turn sevenfold Back onto the, those who have taunted us, because they are also taunting you. And then we have Jesus that says, forgive 70 times 7. How do we deal with that? Well, we have to kind of think of things in context. One with the Old Testament people, they had some special distinctions. They were a nation of people against other nations that they were clearly set apart. And they were able to look at it very much as these nations are not of God, our nation is of God. And so they can identifiably, when they are praying against the enemies of God, they can make those kind of distinctions. And there's also opportunities at times where there is special revelation to be able to identify them. But basically, we know that everybody is an enemy of God since the fall. And we know that everyone needs the mercy and the redemption of God. Even in the Old Testament, we know this. So what do we do with this now? What is the nature of our prayers? Do we pray specifically that people cannot be saved? I do not believe that we have that allowance. I think we do have the ability to pray in the sense of saying, let sin be exposed. In Ephesians, we see that Whatever is exposed by the light becomes light. We want the wicked, dark deeds of sinners to be exposed so that they can be ceased. 
by either repentance or by current judgments. We are to take all of these, and we are to take also another very common book of the Old Testament, the Proverbs, and understand that there should be a very humble approach of praying these kind of prayers. We have to remember that Nehemiah begins this particular narrative that is a part of him with repentance and humility. He is not praying this prayer apart from the understanding that he deserves the judgment of God himself. But he is praying that the kingdom of God would be successful and that the adversaries of God would be hushed. It is very right for us to pray, to love our enemies. We do not have that distinction. The Lord in the New Testament and with the coming of Christ has opened up his grace to all nations. We don't have those distinctions. We can't say that Iran is a doomed and damned nation. Thankfully, we can't say that the United States is not a doomed and damned nation. We have lots of good reason to say that there are maybe nothing but rubble and burn trash at this point based upon our actions and the guilt that we have for our many sins. The Lord has promised that he would bring about his furthering of his kingdom to all nations and to all people. We do not have that special revelation and secret knowledge to know individuals that are still breathing, whether they will ever be able to breathe out repentance or not. But we can let our prayers be a precatory toward the wickedness in the doctrines of falsehood. We can pray openly that wickedness will end, and we can identify that wickedness and for what it is. We are not to celebrate the wicked in their wickedness. We are not to ignore it. We are to ask God that he would either break hearts or break heads of all of his adversaries and enemies. Because that's what he's done to us, right? He's broken our hearts so that we may know him. Paul Washer says that all of your Reformed theology and good doctrine will be annulled if you do not outlove those who oppose you. So what we need to understand is that the nature of God's love is that he hates sin. He hates the sin that is in us. And he will fervently, with zeal, has sent his own son to defeat that sin. He hates it. That is his great love for us, that he hates sin so much that he sent not only his son, but his spirit to cleanse us from that sin. When we see our enemies, we need to hate every wicked sin that we see that's attached and is corrupted in our enemies. And we need to hate it and we need to despise it. We need to pray against it. We need to ask that God would destroy it. And may it be that God would be merciful, that he would show his wrath for that sin on the cross instead of upon this person in hell. But whatever you will be done, destroy the sin. 
destroy the wickedness. And because you were merciful to me, Lord, on that cross, because of your love for your people, and because we do not know what may happen to these adversaries, we pray that may it be that you would increase your fold by drawing them to repentance and grace. That's how to have imprecatorial prayers and at the same time to pray for the salvation of God's enemies. Jesus prayed this way in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. He gives us the model of how we should also pray. He says, for I have given them the words that you have given me and I have received them and have come to know Excuse me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, they are yours. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. They are not of this work. I am praying for those. And Jesus has that special insight. He knows of those before him who are believing. And he knows, he even prays in that prayer, if you go read it in John 17, of those who will believe. How many of you in here know who will believe and not believe that are living today, living today or tomorrow? Do you have a list somewhere? (laughs) You don't. So we can leave it generically and we can say, Lord, bring everyone to you that you are planning to bring into yourself. And whoever it is that is of the world that is not of you, then he is left up to you. That's what we can pray. This is... Our hope, the 23rd Psalm says, you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. We know that there are enemies there that are going to possibly change over. We know that the writer of most of the epistles was a very staunch enemy of God and he became a servant, a very diligent servant of God. We do not know what the Lord may bring, but we are knowing that through his word that he is constantly preparing tables for his people, whether it was the table in the tabernacle at that time before the enemies of Sanballat and Tobiah, or even us today, sometimes enemies in our own homes or enemies even in our own churches or enemies in our communities or enemies in our nation. We do not know what the Lord is going to do with those enemies, but we keep going to the table and we go and we cry to him that your will be done and that you would continue to conquer over your enemies whichever way you desire to conquer over them. And then to close, we have this great hope. These Pharisees, these poor Pharisees, we know are the enemies and adversaries of God. They show us the examples of what we should expect in the ministry because just as Jesus said, because they hated him, they're going to hate you. Jesus says in Luke 13, it says, at that very hour, some of the Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Look at how he responds. He said to them, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day 
I finish my course. The irony here is that this fox gets his way. He, this little, small, insignificant, lightweight fox, was able to trample upon the body of Christ, and it came down. But he says, even in that proclamation to this fox, on the third day, it's going to be rebuilt. It's going to be rebuilt for eternity. It's going to be rebuilt, and you will be judged by it. I have no idea if Tobiah was even has a clue to what he was saying, mocking the Jews, just like Herod and the Romans and the Pharisees mocked Jesus and said, they're going to kill you. They're going to trample you. They're going to tear down this wall. And he says, no, I tear this down and I will rebuild it on the third day. What the Jews here are doing are nothing but a shadow of the work that Jesus is doing. It only points to the fact that this will come down once again, but when it is rebuilt in Jesus Christ and his church, it will never, ever be torn down again. That is why we, when we go and face our adversaries this day, we can remember the words that were written by a former enemy of God in Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. These adversaries of God said, will you be able to finish in a day? Will you be able to finish in that final day? No, we will not be able to finish in that final day, but Jesus will complete the good work in us to full completion at the day of his return. We can say to Satan, go and tell that fox that he rose on the third day and he will continue to do that work. So with that nature of promise in our hearts, and we too can have the nature of the same prayers, what is our response? We keep building the wall. Joined together, we keep building the wall. We can have the mind to keep about this work because the good work will be brought to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.